Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Please keep moving, museum visitors. We are happy to have you here at the Terrestrial Museum of Natural History. We are coming now to the dioramas from the 20th century. Who is that? Eisenhower. That is the last living baby boomer. He is 137 years old, and he has agreed to spend the remainder of his life as a museum exhibit because baby boomers enjoy being looked at. Eisenhower. What's he saying? He is saying... Eisenhower. That means he is hungry, or wants to play golf. Compy fish. He says he wants some fish. No, he is saying the name Country Joe and Fish, the least talented band to play at Woodstock. Hi, baby boomer. Hello. Little Rock, Pasternak, Mickey Mantle, Kerouac, Smutnik, Joe and Live, Bridge on the River Kwai, Buddy Holly, Ben Hur, Space Monkey, Mafia, Hula Hoops, Castro, Edsel is a no-go. We didn't start the fire. I wish you had not done that. This is some kind of hymn from the baby boomer religion. It was always burning since the world's been turning. Oh, dear. You killed him. He is just stunned. Baby boomers are very self-involved. It is a mistake to get them singing a song about themselves. They have so many songs about themselves. Why don't they teach about them at my school? President Trump ordered the destruction of many baby boomer materials he considered unflattering to him. Yes, but he gave us so much. Methane zeppelins, the trail of stakes, the Amarosa silver dollar, all of those beautiful folk ballads about the methane zeppelin fires. It is time to move to the next exhibit, which covers the transition of the northern United States into three Canadian provinces under Emperor Justin Trudeau. <sighs> Even we robots think he was a very hot emperor. If you wish to learn more about Trump, continue listening. And now he is being treated for non-infectious Radiohead, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I didn't realize that uh, Radiohead was like uh, something you could get, uh, like Little Leaguer's Elbow or something. Uh, anyway, that's coming later. Uh, let me ex- uh, set up the meta concept of the show. Uh, Stephen Metcalf is a commentator whose insights are both deep and original. He expresses them in lapidary prose, both speaking and writing sentences that incite envy in other speakers and writers. Beneath all that, he lives in a world of terrible, self-lacerating psychic darkness. And what amazes me is that this description applies equally and perfectly to two Steve Metcalfs, and both are on the show today. Our second conversation will be about Radiohead with Stephen with a V, uh, Metcalf. Uh, right now we're talking to Stephen with a PH, uh, Metcalf. Uh, he is a, a writer, in fact, a critic at large um, for Slate Magazine. He wrote their cover story for last week, Donald Trump, Baby Boomer. It has excited much discussion, uh, and uh, he's with us to help us discuss it even more. Welcome to the show, Stephen with a PH, Metcalf. Holland, thank you so much. Great and. To be. 
And so uh, he's joining us by Skype. By the way, Skype is a registered trademark for something called Skype. Um, after sitting out many of the iconic experiences of the Vietnam era, baby boomer Donald Trump has finally occupied an administration building. It's called the Republican Party. And Dean Ryan is super upset. Uh, so talk about this, Stephen Metcalf. Why is it important to think about Donald Trump, born in 1946, as a baby boomer? That's a great question. I mean, I think it begins with the fact that um, Trump is perceived as authentic by the people who are supporting him. Um, and what is the origin of that authenticity? I mean, presumably his core constituency is downwardly mobile white men. What is it about this person who lived a kind of incomparably posh existence, um, much of it by virtue of an, inher an inheritance from his father? What is it about this person that he can be perceived as authentic? And I said, well, you know, I started my piece by saying he's authentic sort of in the same way that Reagan was sincere. You know, neither Reagan's sincerity nor Trump's authenticity requires any reference to the truth. Reagan believed what he said was true sincerely. Therefore, he was able to say it sincerely and he was perceived of uh, as being a very honest man. Similarly, um, Trump is authentic because he really feels this depth of resentment and rage. Um, and so when he speaks, he speaks with a kind of authentic emotion. It thrills the crowd. It creates a kind of circuitry with this core constituency. Um, and therefore, it doesn't matter that it bears no relationship to the truth whatsoever. So I began with a mystery, which is what is it about this basically spoiled child uh, that allowed him to speak with this degree of uh, enraged, authentic, inflamed authenticity. So one of the things you looked at was Vietnam. And, you know, we might have thought after the 2012 election that we were going to close the books uh, on Vietnam. We went through the 90s where uh, the word, uh, the phrase draft dodger attached itself to Bill Clinton as he ran against people with actually actual military experience, uh, Bush 41 and then Dole. Uh, then we went through uh, the candidacies of George W. Bush, again, a person whose relationship with the Vietnam War and the military had much more to do with avoidance uh, than than not uh, running against people like John McCain in the primaries, Al Gore, who was at least kind of a Vietnam journalist of some kind, and, and then John Kerry, uh, again, an authentic combat veteran. And then it seemed like maybe we were finally going to quiet down after Obama beat McCain in 2008. Uh, we had an election that was kind of not about Vietnam in 2012. Somehow or other, the baby boomers have lunged back out of their diorama for one wheezing lunge at the presidency. We've got two of them who, 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 who were shaped to a certain degree by that era. What is it that you're saying Vietnam either did or didn't do to Trump, or, or in what way did it shape him? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I think it's important to start by thinking about what a generation is, right? So we very often conflate uh, generate the, the, the word generation with the concept cohort. A cohort is a group of people born roughly in the same time period. Generation is something else. It actually is a sociological concept. It was introduced into soci sociology by Carl Mannheim. And the, uh, Mannheim's idea was that a cohort becomes a generation poetically and historically. Uh, they're not simply made one by the fact that they're born in a particular year or, or period. And how does that typically happen? Well, what Mannheim says is if you look throughout history, a generation becomes poetically self-conscious uh, when it intersects, when they intersect at a certain young age with historical events such as uh, warfare or famine, but most typically war. 
Um, so you have the Revolutionary War creates the you know cadre of young men that we're now also familiar with from Hamilton. You have World War One, which creates the Lost Generation. You have World War Two, which creates the Greatest Generation. Well, what's the interesting fact then about the baby boomers? The interesting fact is they were born in such huge numbers in such unprecedentedly huge numbers that before they could walk or talk, they were invoked as a generation and not as a cohort, a kind of the mantle of destiny befell them when they were still in the crib. Well, then what happens is they grow up and there is a war that can and in some respects did make them a generation in that poetic sense that did fulfill their destiny. The difference is this. They didn't, by and large, fight in it. By and large, they evaded it. They avoided service, and the principal way that they avoided service, in overwhelming numbers, I should say, I mean, the numbers bear this out, of something like 27 million draft-eligible men, a tiny percentage, uh, less, I believe, than 3%, actually went to Vietnam, and a much smaller percentage than that actually saw active combat. And how principally did they avoid the war? The student deferral. And what I wanted to say in my piece, I wanted to point out that in the 1960s, a certain style of public theater became prevalent among the baby boomers as they came of age at Berkeley and Columbia and various other colleges that involved protesting the war out of conscience, but in a, and, and in ways that I admire, I want to add hastily. But I also would say that that style of public theater was very bellicose. In fact, it was itself so martial. At the time, many of the baby boomers' elders speculated that that martial style was compensatory and guilt-driven. And my thesis about Trump is not that he smoked pot or dropped out or grew his hair long or even rebelled against his father. My argument about Trump, and in fact about many of the people who rose to prom boomers who rose to prominence in the 1980s, is that they learned the lesson of that style of public theater, of being endlessly self-promoting, loud, norm-busting, and, uh, and, and warlike or pseudo-warlike in their rhetoric. And this absolutely defines Donald Trump's style of self-presentation. And, you know, it also kind of doubles down on, on something very schizoid about even the history that I just recited, recited, which is that if you want to not get elected president, have an actual physical presence in, in, in Vietnam in your life, uh, that, you know, it worked against John Kerry, it worked mm -hmm. against John McCain, uh, it worked against Al Gore, and certainly having even, you know, World War II military credentials uh, worked uh, against Dole, and, and at least one election worked against Bush. And, and it seems as though one of the things that the baby boomers managed to do was reframe the whole question of valor. I went through the Vietnam era means I assembled somewhere with some signs and some rock music blaring in the background. I know it's astonishing to think that this plays out all over again. It plays out in the uh, primary season in Trump's rather preposterous exchange with John McCain, in which, as you say, John McCain's actual war credentials mean nothing relative to the swagger or the purported swagger of, of uh, Trump. You know, I wanted to add, Colin, that it's sort of the story of three decades. And I wanted to make that part of the argument clear that in the 1960s, you get this style of public theater, as I say, based on a kind of pseudo warfare. You know, all of the first person accounts about Berkeley, uh, everyone from the president of Berkeley down to the most radical protester, they all describe it as a campus of warfare. And then what happens when this gigantic cohort or this bulging cohort uh, would-be generation of the boomers graduates from college in the late 60s, they enter the labor market of the 1970s. And what happens when you have a glutted labor market is the employment conditions are awful. They're exacerbated by the oil shocks. 
They're exacerbated by the entry of women into the labor force. The first decade that this first wave of boomers uh, faces in the labor force is one of massive um, uh, labor glut and underemployment. And what I argue in my piece, and I think the research bears this out, is that this created, um, you know, the, in the 60s, there was this oceanic we, we're all one gigantic group and this, uh, you know, endless rhapsodizing of the boomers as, as, as sort of one unit. In the 1970s, it becomes something of a Hobbesian war of all against all. And the few boomers that do emerge with very good jobs in the 1970s are doing it in part because they're selling their expertise as boomers to their elders. This is how you can market to us. Um, they sell their boomerness up, as it were. Um, uh, but there's an enormous arrogance associated with having won out against a, a very um, loose, uh, uh, a soft labor market. And then in the 80s, that group really takes over the glamour workplaces uh, in the United States. In Wall Street, Hollywood, Washington, D.C., the boomers rise to the fore and take them over uh, and bring this sort of martial style of arrogance with them. Well, what's the irony about Donald Trump? Donald Trump didn't emerge from the 1970s with some great job that he'd outcompeted all his peers to win. He emerged from the 1970s with a trust fund. He emerged, emerges from the 1970s with this huge bequest. Not only is it $40 million, and by the 80s is, is something closer to $200 million, as I understand it. Not only is it, it's, it's not as if it's just simply a gigantic lump sum of money. It's an up-and-running real estate empire. And to me, this is why... Uh, Trump triples down on his generational insecurity is because he did nothing to earn that whatsoever. And so essentially for 35 years in American public life, Donald Trump has told us that he's a warrior and he's a business warrior against all the facts accumulated against those conclusions. All right, let's get a little taste of that martial arrogance. Let's hear a, a guy who had student deferments and then her heel spurs uh, talking uh, to an actual warrior about how to be a good warrior. I supported him for president. I raised a million dollars for him. It's a lot of money. I supported him. He lost. He let us down. But, you know, he lost. So I never liked him as much after that, because I don't like losers. <laughs> but, but, Frank, He's Frank, let me get hero. to it. He's he hit me. Hero. He's not a war hero. He's a war hero. He's a war Five hero. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. Do you He's agree with that? He's a war hero because he was captured, okay? You can have, and I believe... Perhaps he's a war hero, but, but right now he said some very bad things about a lot of people. So what I said is John McCain, I disagree with him that these people aren't crazy, and very importantly, and I speak the truth, he graduated last in his class at Annapolis. So I said, nobody knows that. I said he graduated last or second to last. He graduated last in his class at Annapolis. And he was upset. I said, why, for telling the truth? So that's, of course, uh, Donald Trump talking about John McCain. Uh, better to be able to apparently uh, talk about this than to have actually done it. Uh, very much a, a part of the, the Metcalfian argument here. Uh, so, Stephen, with a Ph. Metcalf, um, can we, uh, you talked about three decades. Could we add a fourth? And I'd like to add it on to the beginning um, because, in fact, Trump is born about as early as you can be born and still be identified with this Manheimian baby boom generation. And, and I, I was sort of, I mean, once— 
you read this piece by Steve Metcalf in uh, Slate, you can't stop thinking about Trump in these terms. And, and it's a little bit of uh, a piece of open source software for me anyway. I just start putting my own stuff into this equation. And one of the things that I began to think about is that being born in 46, he's really of an age where, you know, maybe one of his early foundational memories might have been the second Red Scare. I mean, he was about eight years old at the peak of the Army McCarthy hearings. You know, what was that all about, uh, Steve Metcalf? I mean, just a boilerplate quote is that it was about, quote, infiltration, subversion, invasion, and the destruction of American society by un-American thought and inhuman beings. Does that sound familiar? I mean, Roy Cohn was one of his early uh, mentors. I I think it's, you know, I love the idea of Trump as a baby boomer, but it's interesting to think about him as an eight-year-old baby boomer because he was seeing sort of a different thing than he would have had he been born eight years later, as I as I was. Yeah, I th- but there's a lot to that. I mean, uh, uh, well, first of all, going back to the clip, I don't know that I'd heard that audio clip in its entirety before, and it struck me for the first time that if you were just to take out the meaning of all the words and just listen to the tone, the tonality <laughs> of that, it's very Lenny Bruce. The the crowd is absolutely electric and absolutely alive to what this person is going to say that's kind of nasty and forbidden and probably shouldn't be said. Um, But back to your brilliant point about the 1950s. I mean, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Just as there was a certain style of public theater at Berkeley in 1968, there was a certain style in Washington, D.C. and in American life during the 1950s. As you say, like McCarthy um, uh, and Nixon and, and Roy Cohn all kind of pioneered this style of public theater of, um, you know, uh, the paradigm being America is a place of innocence. It's a kind of garden of innocence into which some kind of alien or extrinsic snake has been uh, introduced. And it's our duty as real Americans to isolate uh, uh, and expel, if not out and out, kill the, the, the invading you know snake. There's a degree of that to Trump. I think you picked up on absolutely the most interesting point. Uh, open-ended point about Trump right now, and it's what I want to write about him next, is the relationship with Roy Cohn, you know, who's just, you know, from the Kushner plays Angels in America, (laughs) you know, is is now we inherit as a cultural symbol of something deeply confused, self-hating, but also persecuting about American society. The fact that Donald, a very, very young and a very green Donald Trump, hit the first rung along the way to being the man we know now with the aid of Roy Cohn at Studio 54, is so semantically pregnant, <laughs> uh, you can't even get your freaking head around it. I mean, they don't need me to write this piece. They need Kushner. And if not Kushner, they need Tolstoy. But um, anyway, uh, I would say one other thing, Colin, about the 1950s, which is hugely important, I do get to in my piece, which is that the baby boomers were unprecedentedly well-educated and affluent, um, in part because they're parents were doing quite well, but their parents were doing quite well for a specific reason. They were doing quite well because of the GI Bill, and they were doing quite well because of super high marginal tax rates under Eisenhower. They were doing quite well because the FHA and various other federal uh, uh, agencies were building out suburbia. In fact, you could say that, if not Trump specifically, because he grew up super affluent, the vast majority of his peers in the baby boomer cohort grew up uh, under very, very soft conditions because of a massive transfer of wealth. And I, not to overly psychologize and rosebud this, but I do think that there is an intrinsic attraction, almost non-political attraction to the idea of free markets on the part of the baby boomers because they do not want to admit the degree to which 
a massive transfer of wealth via the government made their childhoods uh, possible. Well, well, you're at the uh, grand zero, the Tigers and Euphrates of over-psychologizing and rosebudding. That's what we like to do here. So uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit a couple of other high labs uh, to you over the net uh, with, the, with the baby boom generation and cultural history and just to see whether you hit them back. One of the other thoughts that I had uh, after reading your piece was, so what other formative moments would there have been for the young Donald? And it strikes me that, again, being born in 1946 instead of 1954, he, you know, he would have imprinted like a baby duck uh, on the the duck's ass haircut of Elvis Presley, that Elvis Presley on Ed Sullivan would have probably been a bigger thing for him than the Beatles, which kind of feeds a little bit into his mythos, right? He's not one of four or seven of nine or anything like that. He's the king. I mean, Elvis was the king. Probably the first big cultural moment for him was seeing the king. You know, I'm I'm completely with you on this, that when you go back, you read... uh, about the baby boomers are really the war babies that grow up to be rock stars. Mm -hmm. The experience of seeing Elvis on television gave us all of the music we now associate with the baby boomers. John Lennon saw Elvis on TV and wanted to be Elvis. Um, Bob Dylan saw Elvis on TV and wanted to be Elvis. That, That imprinted so deep on that generation. And I think there's a Bob Dylan quote about having seen Elvis that stays with me forever. Dylan said something, I'm going to totally radically, you know, uh, uh, misquote him, I'm sure. But as a paraphrase, he said something along the lines of seeing Elvis on TV was like busting out of jail, right? (laughs) And you think about it for a second, what jail exactly are they busting out of? They're not in jail. They're they're in a beautiful, uh, uh, you know, domestic paradise designed with one purpose in mind, which was raising healthy kids, um, and now the baby boomer experience of that was as a kind of a jail to be busted out of. But it's just fascinating that this language of radical experience gets imported in order to wish away how, in fact, mundane and banal many of the early life circumstances of the boomers were. Um, let me uh, try one last uh, high lob on this to you. And that is, uh, you know, uh, Donald would have been about 14 years old when JFK was elected, about 17 when JFK was shot. Not for nothing did it surface at the end of Ted Cruz's run that there was some kind of uh, strange conspiracy theory that, that Donald Trump was eager to tra- traffic in. That's a very powerful story for somebody his age. And it may explain a lot of things, including he has a kind of fascination with Arcana, right? He's, he often will say, they don't want you to know this. You know, mm-hmm. there's something else that they don't want you to know. There's sort of a world within a world that I'm aware of or vaguely aware of that I'm going to tell you about. And, and you know, I mean, Trump, because of being born in 46, he spent a lot of his time sitting on that cliff beyond which was assassination, Vietnam, Watergate, this sort of crushing of the myth of American safety and ultra competence. And there's some way in which that's a crucible, too. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, he he. He traveled, as everyone in his generation did, this really depressing journey from the high watermark of American idealism, which was the election of uh, JFK and the New Frontier speech, extremely high-minded notions uh, of of the American ideal and the American exception, to travel that through the 1960s, through the Vietnam War, uh, through to the the invasion of Cambodia, secret invasion of Cambodia, through to Watergate, um, and the disposal of Nixon, um, uh, uh, you know, it, it's it, that that had to, that has to have shaped 
anyone who lived through that as a young person pretty radically in, in favor of a kind of defensive cynicism. I mean, you're just not going to allow your heart ever to be broken to that degree again. Now, whether or not you should scapegoat the United States government in all and every circumstances as a way of never having your heart broken in that way again, that strikes me as slightly preposterous. But I, but it, it's understandable. It's quite a human response to having been essentially an adolescent um, during a period where one thought anything was possible and having emerged from adolescence into, into early adulthood feeling like nothing, really, I mean, quite literally, almost nothing was possible. You know, and that's, and I, I want to add quickly that that's why there is an aspect to Trump which is perversely admirable, which is even when it's built on illusion, there's what we might call, those of us from New York would call the Wolman Rink Trump, the good <laughs> Trump. You know, Wolman Rink was the skating rink that, that for a variety of, you know, reasons having to do with, as I understand it, bureaucratic gridlock just could not be refurbished and open. And Trump took over the project and he just did it, you know, and, and if only Trump were the best version of himself, there would be something genuinely admirable there, which is a man who made his fortune in something other than high finance, simply building buildings and opening them. But um, he long ago even gave that up. He now licenses his name to others and essentially he's a reality television show uh, clown and it remains to be seen how continuous with the mores of reality TV our politics have become. Well, Stephen Metcalf, I would like to talk to you some more about this, but you have so many pieces to write. You've got the Roy Cohn piece. You've got the Elvis piece. You've got the Hillary Clinton, comma, baby boomer piece, because let's be clear, two of them broke out of the crypt. <laughs> two of them busted out of the mausoleum for this um, election. Before, before you get rid of me, can I just say that I am Stephen Metcalf and I am the one and only Stephen Metcalf. <laughs> and, and I hope this is established that I am the platonic Stephen Metcalf. Uh, no, we, there's a broadsword duel that will be fought uh, on the uh, Merritt Parkway a little bit later today. So sharpen your blade, be ready, uh, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is a total delight. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Uh, we're going to start singing a different song. It's a Radiohead song. So that is Desert Island Disc 
It is from A Moon-Shaped Pool, which is the ninth studio album by Radiohead, the first one since 2011. Uh, and uh, joining us now, uh, as we promised, an all-Steve Metcalf show today. Uh, so uh, Steve, Stephen Steve with a V uh, Metcalf joins us now. He is uh, many things, including a music writer for us. He's a music writer for many places, but we're especially excited about the fact uh, that he writes uh, for us at WNPR.org uh, with a very, very popular a column indeed. Uh, so, um, you know, I think there is sort of a baby boomer segue here because, in fact, one of the things that you and I deal with a lot with members of our generation is kind of this sense that maybe Bruce Springsteen was the last musician that they got interested in and, and that, you know, people kind of of our baby boom generation um, kind of, you know, they listen to their stuff uh, and they don't necessarily listen to new music all that much. So for those of uh, those kinds of people who are listening right now, um, why should anybody care about Radiohead? Make, make a case for Radiohead. <laughs> well, you know, I think, first of all, what you're describing about people losing interest in music, you know, that, that uh, is not of their own youth applies more to sort of, I don't know, casual listeners than it does to actual musicians. I mean, the thing that, the thing that impresses me about Radiohead, the thing that has really struck me about the reaction to Prince's death to, to Bowie's death is how musical people uh, have, I think, felt sort of uh, liberated in a way to, to declare how much it means to them and how important it is and how meaningful they find it. I mean, this new album, this ninth album by Radiohead, which you know only came out on Sunday, uh, I'm sure people will, uh, will talk about as a departure, a quote departure, because that's how people seem to talk about Radiohead albums. And it simply means they keep moving forward and they keep doing, you know, stuff that's different from their previous album. And that's what makes it interesting. And, you know, I don't think that's a thing that has an age group attached to it. Um, we're going to uh, listen to a little bit of the opening of the track, the second track. They, they dropped two tracks uh, uh, kind of Thursday and Friday before uh, letting us have the whole thing on Sunday. Uh, the second one was uh, a, a track called Daydreaming. Uh, we'll just uh, li let you listen to the instrumental opening of Daydreaming. Steve Metcalf, one of the things that uh, you've done for me in my life is introduce me to a lot of work by serious composers. You know, we can go back to Terry Riley and John Cage and Alvin Lucier and people like that, or we can go forward. I mean, certainly uh, Arvo Per and, and Taverner and Gorecki and the kinds of music that you for so many years presented as curator of the Garmini series uh, over at the Hart School of Music. And listening to this, I feel like it sounds more like all of that stuff that new chamber groups uh, and avant-garde musicians would be playing than it does to me anything like a rock song I've ever heard. Right. I mean, if you if you just listen to that opening before the before the vocal comes in, which is now we hear right now, um, 
you know, you would have really no idea whether this was a so-called serious young composer who worked in electronics or whether this was an English rock group or anything in between. I mean, and that's, in a way, I think the kind of cool thing that's happening in the music world these days is that, is that those divisions, those segments, those boundaries don't, don't seem so important anymore. I mean, you know, we hear about people um, blurring boundaries. I don't, I don't myself think of it exactly that way. I just think these, these segments, these categories to young musicians just simply aren't that interesting anymore. And I think that, you know, if, if you were to define Radiohead not as a rock band, but as simply a small musical ensemble, it would be easier to accept the fact that they're, they're doing this kind of music. And, and in fact, the last few albums, you know, it's, it's difficult to locate any real rock in, in uh, those recent albums. So I think small ensemble works just as well. We're just hearing in the background one of those modulations that are just such incredible payoffs uh, in the middle of a song. These Radiohead songs, they the album songs in this album they change all the time but they mutate not in a forced way it feels kind of natural uh, when something new happens thematically or, or there's a, a chord modulation or yeah, something it, like it that it is a little reminiscent some uh, i mean i hate to reach back for the beatles as we often do in these discussions but you know when you think back to a day in the life and there there were two i mean it literally was like two songs stitched together um, you know, some of these Radiohead tunes feel like seven or eight tunes stitched together, but stitched together very imaginatively and very, I think, uh, creatively. I mean, is there a reason why? First of all, correct me if I'm wrong. My sense is that Radiohead is uh, um, a group, whatever we're going to call them, that at least nominally come out of the rock genre that has almost in an unaccustomed and unprecedented way really attracted the attention uh, of serious musicians, uh, of chamber groups and orchestras, and, and they, they want to they tackle this m- material. You've already alluded to some reasons as to why that might be. Are there other reasons, things that can be talked about that would explain why so many groups that, that play in that field w- want to play them? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I do think that, uh, you, you know, it sort, of, it sort of builds on itself. I mean, and we have to give credit to uh, the pianist Christopher O'Reilly, who uh, some, some listeners may recognize Chris's name because he hosts the From the Top uh, radio program on, on NPR, which features like a lot of young musicians from around the country. But, but Chris is also a very gifted and formidable pianist in his own right. And way back in, I think, 2003, so that would be, you know, well ahead of this curve, he, he sort of got everybody's attention in the classical world by bringing out an album he called it "True Love Waits," which was also the cut, uh, the title cut on the on, on the disc, which which oddly enough is now on the new album, because Radiohead has been sort of dragging this tune around in live performance for years. But the point is that Chris brought out this album that really, and it was all Radiohead tunes. It was nothing but. It wasn't like he did an odd little encore or something. Mm. It was all like 12 or 13 Radiohead tunes, and I think that really did get the serious world's attention sort of in the same way that when Kronos Quartet did Purple Haze uh, back in 1986, it got everybody's attention. You know, it, it, it just kind of thrust that music out into a, an arena where it hadn't been before. Let's hear a little bit of a, uh, Christopher O'Reilly's. Uh, I, we're not supposed to say cover. I, he, no, you're no, going to explain no, we're that. We're going to talk just, about that. Yeah, so uh, his version, anyway, of <laughs> True Love Waits. Thank you. 
And so while that's happening, we should also say that jazz artists are, are doing pretty much the same thing. Robert Glasper has this uh, very uh, beautiful and haunting version of Reckoner. Um, just, Brad, Brad Meldow has done a bunch. Yeah. So there is something ab- about this. Um, you know, um, I do want to talk a little. Well, actually, let's deal with the whole cover question, because uh, this is a term to which uh, you've decided <laughs> you're going to object. Well, uh, first of all. Well, f- first, first of all, let's let's acknowledge that little lick we just heard by O'Reilly. You know, I mean, that's a very beautiful, dare I say, haunting to use an overused word in the music business uh, passage that certainly could have been written by any very gifted, you know, young conservatory composer in the land. Um, the reason, I guess, the reason I don't like the word cover is, you know, first of all, I, I kind of associate it with, you know, Pat Boone singing. Uh, you know, Long Tall Sally or something, you know, I mean, it, it for a long time, it has basically meant appropriating somebody else's hit for your mercenary purposes. And it, and it has, you know, certainly not implied any artistic input of one's own. I, I think uh, certainly with this Chris O'Reilly uh, excerpt you just play and, and, and with many, many other uh, treatments of Radiohead material, including, if I may say, the Sybarite Five String Quintet, which which uh, has done an entire album of Radiohead pieces uh, themselves, you know what you're what you're really uh, talking about here is a kind of a reimagining of the music, a kind of a reinvention of it. You're you're not talking about a cover to to try to squeeze out a few extra dollars of somebody else's successful single. You're you're really talking about you know something that is it, itself recomposed for the for the purpose, and that's why I think cover doesn't apply here. Um, I want to play a little bit of a, another song from the new album, uh, which is called uh, A Moonshaped Pool. The, this song is called The Numbers. Um, I want to talk a little bit here with uh, Steve Benkaff afterwards about the voice uh, of Tom York, uh, who's the, pretty much the front man for Radiohead. All right, so this is a guy, I mean, he's not necessarily a guy who, if you heard his voice, you'd think, I want to build a rock band around this guy's vocals. It's a kind of whinnying uh, voice, uh, but it's extremely expressive. They use all kinds of electronic effects with it. Uh, Here on this one, you can hear they're kind of building up a little choir sound behind it from time to time. But, you know, in some ways, the first time you hear this voice, you think, well, is is that going to be like the only kind of singing that Radiohead does? And it is. Yeah, and and I've even read interviews with with uh, York in which he supposedly finds his own voice uh, irritatingly pretty or something, which I, I don't really think he has a lot to worry about there. But um, you know, I I would say, I mean, my answer to that is that uh, you know this is not a classically strong or or sort of uh, compelling voice, 
but I think the voice is is just right for this material. I mean, this kind of existentially weary, almost Beckett-like, you know, sound world that they create. That that's the voice that ought to be singing that music. I mean, when you think of rock voices, when you think of David Byrne and Talking Heads, you know, that wasn't a great voice, but it was the right voice for that material. Um, I, even if I can stretch this a little further, when you think of Ray Davies. That's not a great voice, but it's the perfect voice for the kinks and for those kind of sardonic, <laughs> you know, Kurt Vile-like like, uh, tunes of theirs. And, and so I, th- I feel the same thing is true for York. You know, it's, it's the right voice for that material. We've been talking to Steve Metcalf. Uh, he's the founder of the Richard P. Garmony uh, Chamber Music Series at the Hart School. He's so many other things besides, uh, and uh, he writes for WNPR.org, Metcalf on Music. If you haven't been reading it, and most people have, uh, as I've discovered. <laughs> but most people have, but if you're in that small group. Almost uh, everybody, really. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's going to, is there going to be a Radiohead uh, treat? No, probably not this week. Well, not this week, no. Yeah. But All right. I'm out of material, actually. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, this has flown by, actually. And so we're going to close. You heard the Christopher O'Reilly version of True Love Waits as we leave. This is the brand new, from the brand new, dropped on Sunday version of True Love Waits. I'll try. Today's show was produced by Steve Metcalf, Steve McPants, and Stevie Kyone Metcalf-Wolf. Greg Metcalf tweets for us at WNPR Colin and appeared in the intro with Lydia Brown Metcalf. Our interns are Stephanie Reef Metcalf and Ross Levin Metcalf. A part of Bill Curry was played by Stephen Metcalf. For show pages, articles, and information about the new Steve Metcalf show airing after hours, go to our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, the importance of historical forgetting. And now, back to Colin. All right, so we're back. Here's the deal. Um, we've got about seven minutes left, which doesn't sound like a lot of time, but it is in radio. Our number is 860-275-7266. I'm going to say that a few more times, and our Twitter handle is WNPR Colin. One thing I've been trying to do with this show, when I've got a little bit of time uh, left over, and, and maybe we should just do it, like just blow out a show for this kind of thing, but I really do feel that we're going through an election season unlike any other in my life. I th- feel like people need to talk, but I also think one of the mistakes that we've made in journalism 
journalism, and Jim Rutenberg made this point in the New York Times on Monday, is we're not listening enough, uh, particularly to people who are going in political directions that don't necessarily seem to make sense to us. So um, I'm inviting you to call in right now at 860-275-7266. There's nothing going on for the next seven minutes except uh, your phone calls and or whatever else I, I have to say. But I'd rather hear from you at 860 860- Two seven five seven two six six. I should have given this number out a little bit earlier so you could be ready. Or, or uh, you may tweet at us at WNPR Colin. And, and here's why I think this is important. I, I think Rutenberg made a great point, which is why have we been so consistently wrong about this election season? Uh, why did we not understand that the Bernie Sanders insurgence was bigger uh, than it seemed as though it, it ought to be? And then why did we not even remotely get Trump? Why did the smartest people in the business, uh, you know, the Nate Silvers, why has Nate Silver spent the last month or so kind of apologizing for, for all these ceilings? I mean, like all kinds of smart people. And I know need to pick on Nate Silver. John Dickerson, the smartest guy covering politics for my money, you know, had created all these kind of Trump ceilings that turned out to be wrong. And I think a lot of it is because we're not listening. Uh, we're not uh, listening to, to particularly to people who think differently than we do. So nothing would make me happier, I should say, than to have a prospective Donald Trump voter or two call in at 860-275-7266. We've got full lines right now. People do want to talk. I hope one or two of these people are uh, Trump. I, I think we need to hear from people. It's why I think Rutenberg made a great point. We just haven't listened enough. Those of us who cover politics, and which I do with part of my time, we spend a lot of time talking to politicians. We spend a lot of time talking about to political professionals, operatives, stuff like that. We don't necessarily spend a lot of time talking to people who vote in elections but don't work in that industry. Uh, and one of the things that I want to do in between now and November is reverse that trend a little bit. Uh, let's talk to Peter in Stanford. Hi, Peter. Uh, yes, I think this election uh, we should uh, has a great opportunity for third parties because I think the two leading candidates are just unacceptable to a lot of people. I think you'll see a, a greater uh, numbers of a third party. They always run every year, and you do a great show every year about uh, these third-party candidates. But I think it's an opportunity. They'll, I think they'll gain maybe a, a couple more percentage points, and, you know, but obviously they don't have a prayer. But you know, I think it might highlight the third parties, uh, like the Libertarians. I, I think there's like four or five leftist parties that run all throughout the country. Um, and um, and the Green Party and, uh, you know, the American Constitutional Party. They're parties from the left and right, and I think this is going to be a good uh, uh, year for them to shine, I think. It seems as though with uh, on the conservative side as though Republicans are really struggling with this. I mean, I'm sure some people will struggle. Disappointed uh, Sanders voters will struggle on the other side. But right now, with the Republican establishment in such great numbers rejecting Trump or, or questioning Trump's candidacy, the likelihood of them maybe seeking out a ballot line that already exists, uh, I don't know how willing the libertarians or anybody else would be willing to how willing they would be to give away their ballot line to some kind of Republican establishment alternative to Donald Trump. It seems like kind of a hard sell somehow. Uh, but, yeah, third parties may be a little bit more to the point this year than they have been in some other election. Here's uh, I asked for a Trump supporter. My wishes are granted. Here's Philip. Hi, you're on the air. Oh, I'm not really a Trump supporter, per se. Oh. Um uh, I just wanted. I guess I was listening to uh, your your query for just callers to call in. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. And I'm following up, I guess, with the previous caller that it really is a, an election for third parties because 
I'm 57 years old, and I, I lived through a lot of independent, um, where e- e- elections where independents were, you were able to vote for an independent like John Anderson back in the 70s, and, you know, uh, Lieberman, sure. You know, more he, was actually, he was actually 1980. And, I'm just, I just, I'll get emails if I don't do this. Uh, oh, John Anderson okay. was the candidate in 1980. Right, right. So, so um, I, I always took it for granted that uh, people, regardless of their standing politically, were able to cast a about a, a vote. And it's just shocking to me that in this election cycle, if you're registered as an independent, you can't vote in very, very many primaries. Yeah, including Connecticut. Thanks so much for your call. Uh, Let me grab one more call here. Let's grab, uh, let's see, Greg in West Hartford. Hi, Greg, you're on the air. No, you're not. You gave up too easily. All right, it's going to be fast, but we'll go to Renee in Colchester, Massachusetts. Uh, Hi, you're going to have to make it quick. I'm almost out of time. Okay, anything. Anyway, I just wanted to say that, you know, I'm a veteran of this country. I'm a Cuban-American that was born here of immigrant parents. I've served my country. I have voted both parties because really I vote ideas, not uh, not party. Uh, this last election cycle to me has been really a heartbreaker. To see this much unleashed hatred and bellicosity and racism, quite frankly, is just unacceptable to me. I find uh, I find myself more than flabbergasted. I mean, I, I've come to the decision that I really as a person who enjoys the facility of speaking in three languages, I've decided that I really would like to leave this country if Donald Trump were to be elected. Well, we might need we, we might need you more than ever at that point. Don't don't go. That's when uh, that's when we need somebody who's uh, got a brain and an independent mind and can speak three languages uh, and and has the kind of background that you have. So don't leave us, Renee, no matter what. I'm sorry we're out of time. I, I don't dare take another call. But if you like this idea, shoot me an email, Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. I really feel like we ought to be listening more. Maybe maybe we need occasionally a whole 49-minute show of listening. Let me know what you think about that idea. We'll be doing this again. So Nancy and Greg and Sam, uh, we'll get you on next time. Now we enter the Emperor Tom York discography field, where you will engage with interactive cover art from Pablo Honey, The Bends. Okay, computer? Okay, what? Okay, computer. Okay, what? Okay, computer. Okay, what? How do I get a refund on this tour?